one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is Gary Stevenson, the economist, writer, YouTuber and former city trader. Gary was raised in a working class family in Ilford, East London, where money was always tight. But by his mid-twenties, he'd become the youngest trader in the city of London and shortly afterwards, the most successful financial trader in the world. By the time he was 30, he'd burnt out, walked away from it all and devoted his talents to highlighting the inbuilt inequalities of the world economy that he'd seen up close. His new book, The Trading Game, documents this incredible story. It's exciting, like a British version of The Wolf of Wall Street, but it's also a deeply human story about ambition, money, inequality and all the ethical conundrums that those things can throw up. Suffice to say, it's a story about mental health too. As it says in the book, the city trading floor was a place where your colleagues were dysfunctional maths geniuses, overfed public schoolboys and borderline psychopaths. Yet, they started to feel like family. Where soon, you were the bank's most profitable trader, dealing in nearly a trillion dollars a day. Where you dreamt of numbers in your sleep and then stopped sleeping at all. I found this chat with Gary engrossing, inspiring and educational and I hope you do too. Gary Stevenson, welcome to The Reset. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, reading your book, enjoying it. Um, it it's, it's thrilling, exhilarating, fascinating, dark at times. Um, your story's remarkable. Uh, you grew up in, in Ilford, East London, sort of dreaming, looking at Canary Wolf every night in the distance and sort of dreaming like something in a movie about one day working there. I suppose my first question is, you know, you're from a working class background. You didn't know anyone who'd worked in that world or been anywhere near that world. So what do you think gave you that sort of belief from such a young age that that you would um, end up there? I think ever since I was a kid, really, I was always probably a bit immodest to say it, but I had kind of a gift, really, when it came to maths. I was mm. always like very, very good at maths. I, I won a few maths competitions growing up. Um, I was always just sort of like the, the top kid in school, really, if I'm allowed to sort of say that. And um, yeah. I got into a grammar school. I went to a grammar school at Ilford County High School, which had more sort of like, more sort of middle-class kids, middle-class backgrounds. Um, Ilford is a very South Asian area. Ilford County High is a very Indian school and um, had, had just loads of sort of Indian mates, basically. And they just had really good knowledge of what were the good jobs, what are you supposed to do, Um you know, if you're sort of the smartest kid in school, I just sort of figured, yeah, why not me, I guess. Yeah. And was that something that your parents sort of encouraged you in as well? I think my mum especially, she recognised I was very good at maths very early on. Um, 
And she did sort of encourage that. But really, my parents are not sort of super like do well at school, do well at school types. I think I just sort of, I was interested in it. Um, I was, I think more than anything, I was quite a competitive kid, really. Mm. I wanted to sort of be, I was that kind of kid that will make sure they're the top in the class and then just stop working. You know, I think that was, that's what, I, that kind of annoying kid. <laughs> uh, but you're also really interested in or uh, you know a lot of feelings about money from an early age as well um where yeah, you think I, that came from yeah I write about that a bit in the book I mean I was just super aware I remember being super aware there's this one story in the book isn't there of when um I was a kid and my parents gave me a pound coin to go to the Esso garage and buy some lemonade and like I dropped it and just spent what felt like hours, like looking through it, like scrabbling in the drains, looking under cars and just going back home in floods of tears. Um, I was just super aware, like the whole time I was a kid, that my parents didn't have a lot of money, that it was a problem for them. Um, I was, I didn't want to ask for money because I knew they didn't have much money. So like as soon as I could, I got a paper round. As soon as I could, I got like a, a weekend job. Um, and I think, you know, you grow up in London you're just aware of these things and it's expensive. Even back then it was an expensive place to live and you see people around, you've got stuff that you don't have. It's sort of, it's hard not to see it, I guess. When you sort of moved up and, you know, you did really well at school and then you had the opportunity to go to London School of Economics. Uh, again, did you feel like a fish out of water? Mm, yes and no, I remember so I did maths and economics at London School of Economics, which is the only uh, subject in the maths department there. So it's a lot of sort of maths geeky kids. And um, I don't know about you, when I was a, like a teenager, I, I sort of, I thought university was going to be like American pie, you know. And I remember we went on this sort of like, <laughs> we went on this like, like uni trip to this sort of fancy lodge in the countryside. And I remember bringing a two litre bottle of vodka. And, mm. and uh, I remember turning up to like one of the like, all of the students are meeting in this one room and the guy who opened the door just said, you better not spill any of that on the floor. And they're all in there like playing chess. I couldn't believe it. Um, <laughs> yeah. They, they were different types. LSC for people who don't know, it's, um, it's a very elite university. It's full of like mm. basically kids of, of, of millionaires and multi, multi-millionaires, sometimes billionaires. Um, but at the same time, you know, the way I saw it was I can still be the best at math. I can still do the best of my exams sort of that's sort of my fallback you know as long as I can beat all these guys in their exams no matter how much their dads pay for their education then I'll, I'll be all right here. was that almost like a bit of an incentive as well the fact that you knew a lot of these people were from very privileged backgrounds and you were there based on like this sort of incredible talent you had you know this this intelligence with numbers and did that give extra incentive to be the best and to beat the others because you, you talk about this thing of always wanting to win yeah, well, there's there's this one story in a book. So my first year at LSE when I was 19, that's when I got like my first proper girlfriend. And like mm. I was I was back in Ilford. She was one year below, so she was still in like high school. And I was like back in Ilford like with my girlfriend all the time. Like I was but barely in school, but I still got did pretty well in my first year. And then suddenly in my second year, like everybody knew who I was, and I was kind of like confused about this. And I was one of my friends, like. Why does everybody know who I am? Because like, I got a good grade, but it wasn't like the best grade. Like my mm. mate got better than me. And he said, Yeah, but nobody expected that from you. And I was right. like, What? Was it? I couldn't really believe it. And that sort of that did motivate me to be like, All right, yeah, we're going to show them basically. We're going to, we're going to show them mm. what we can do. And I think that probably, that probably has been a theme for me, like going through even when I got into the city. Like I, I didn't really realize it until I got into these places, but. You know, there's not a lot of kids from my sort of background in LSE or in the city. Mm. And the people there, I think a lot of them, the way they justify themselves is they just they just think we're thick, basically. So I kind yeah. of wanted to sort of, yeah, make, let them know that we're not because because we're not, you know. I don't know what your background, but, you know, where I grew up, there was a lot of smart kids and it's there's a lot of complicated reasons why they don't get into places like the city. Yeah, it's, um, it's a good motivator when you're treated with snobbishness or people underestimate you or look down on you. It can be a massive um, motivator, can't it? And um, it is interesting that you say that, that they don't, a lot of these, these kids from privileged backgrounds tell themselves that it's not the privilege. It's, it's just an, an intelligence that's superior that gets yeah. them there. So it is a, um, 
it's a great story. The fact that you went and kind of, you know, disproved that to so many people and defied so many people's expectations. Tell us a bit about how you ended up being the the youngest city trader in in in, in London. Yeah, so I went to LSE and I kind of just naively thought you smash up your exams, you get a job. I thought that's how it works. Mm. The way it actually works is you have to send like 30 CVs and cover letters to like 30 different investment banks asking for an internship. And, mm. um, you know, obviously a lot of these kids at LSE from very privileged backgrounds, they, their families have been kind of prepping them for this. So they'd all like, they'd all like played oboe in the Royal Albert Hall or like been president of the Junior United Nations or like trek the Sahara Desert or something, you know? So, and when I was a teenager, I was... I was working at, at DFS, the sofa shop in Beckford, <laughs> you know what I mean? I had to be a grime MC in my spare time. So I was just like, I couldn't really believe it. Like, I just like, I felt like he's a bit of a con, basically. You know, you, you, you do all this work to get all these grades and then you just overruled, basically, because you're from the wrong background. Mm. But one kid, a guy from Grimsby, who I'm still friends with, he... um who I had no idea who he was. He was near above me. He came up to me in the library one day and he just said, you know, Citibank hires one trader a year for a card game, which is basically a maths game. So like, you know, you should go and you, if you win this game, you'll get a job. And I, I was like, oh, I, I couldn't believe it. Basically. And so I just sort of became obsessed with this one game, like memorising everything about this game. When you say so card I, game, literally a card game? Literally a card game. It's just purely a numbers game. It's a special made deck of cards, which... Right. Um, Penguin have given have been printing them out, so maybe we can get you right. one if you want. Yeah. Especially when you deck of cards, some are higher, some are lower. You get one, I get one. Mm. There's like some sort of common cards, and we're basically betting like through a trading system mm. of like what the total is going to be. So if right. I've got a high card, I'm betting it's high. This kind of thing, it's kind of a poker style bluffing game with a kind of like a trading mechanic. But really, I just viewed it as a maths game because really, it's a numbers game. It's a pure numbers mm. game. So you know, I was good at maths. I just got down like memorized this game went to the lse round won that went to the final and well you've you'd have read that bit i guess so you see that the final was some complicated stuff happened i don't want to spoil it for the reader but um eventually i was given the job let, let's say the, the reader can see uh, what happened it's amazing stuff i mean there are so many like points in your story in your book that is like you're watching it's been compared to wolf of wall street um uh, it, it, there, it is cinematic, a lot of the dramatic things that have happened in your life. And you must, when you were writing this book, have thought, Jesus Christ, what, you know, what, what, a, what a wild ride I've, I've been on and been through. And we haven't even got to the bit yet where it's all really kicked in with the lifestyle and, and all of that sort of stuff. What was it like when you first entered that world? Because it seems to me from my question, from what you told me so far, is that you always had a self-belief and a self-confidence that got you through any situation, however in Congress you felt there, but did, did, you know, how weird was it when you stepped into city trading floor? It's a weird place. So for people who haven't seen a trading floor, Citibank is a massive, massive bank. It's an American bank. So some people might not be aware how big it is. One of the biggest banks in the world. And they're one of the biggest trading banks in the world. The trading floor here in Canary Wharf, I I still live quite near it. Mm. Massive, massive room. There's these rows and rows. Everybody's got like 10 screens, massive screens. And like, you can't see sort of both sides at the same time. It just seems like millions of people. Um, it's a weird space. I think one of the weirdest things about it is the sort of the lingo, the terminology, like everyone's, you don't understand what anybody's saying. And sort of, I turned up and I was just kind of asking people questions and nodding along. I had no idea what anybody was saying. And um, it was kind of amazing to me that nobody realised I didn't have any idea what was going on. But <laughs> the whole way through it, like you say, I, I, I was a very confident, very competitive kid. And I think, you know, I had, I'd sit, I'd been the top at LSE. I'd been the top, you know, at my school was growing up. So I kind of thought, well, I looked around me and, you know, you'd have read the book. So you see, mm. I assumed going in, the trading floor was going to be full of geniuses. It turned out it was kind of full of like, just totally insane people more than anything else. Mm. I looked around and I thought, well, you know, if these guys can do it, yeah, why not me? Okay, so this is an interesting thing. Does working in the city send you insane? Or do you yeah. do you have to be insane in I know that sounds like that naff joke you get on yeah. cups in offices. Do you have 
But there is something about from our, from my very sort of two dimensional perception of the, of the city, which is based on TV shows and movie depictions, all the rest of it. Yeah. You know, it feels like you've got to be pretty brutal at times, heartless and absolutely relentless. And there probably is. I mean, you you use the word psychopathic. Uh, in yeah. the book, and there probably is a, a lot of overlap in the characteristics. And so, what I'm saying is, is there a natural filter that means the people who end up there and thrive there have a sort of a kink in their persona or the, or their mentality, or does it just take people who are who are otherwise well balanced and just drive them in that direction? I think it's a bit of both. I mm. think you know, not everyone who goes into the city is the same, but it tends to attract very very competitive people mm. especially if we get a, when it comes to trading a lot of very very competitive young men because it's difficult to it's, it's very very difficult to get that job the people who get into it have generally been sort of prepping for a long long time so these are the kind of guys who have been kind of obsessed about getting into that that world since they were like 13 14 and often they've sort of made a lot of sacrifices you know they've been obsessing about getting into it for a long time but, you know, not everybody is totally mad. I think, I mean, a, a, a big part of the book is kind of my story of how it affected me, basically. And it's a very intense job. It's very stressful. I remember, like, quite clearly a thing that happened early on when I first started being a trader, which was I was walking through Ilford Exchange, which is the shopping mall on the top floor. And we walked past, like, a, a TV shop. You used to have them back then. And there were all the TVs in the window. And the news was on and I could see something happen on the news. And I knew straight away, like, I'm going to lose like 200 grand when I walk in in the morning. Right. And I think this living this kind of life where anything can happen at any moment that's going to hit you, it, it mm. does affect you. And the guys who I was on the trading floor with, there was kind of like this sort of hazing. I remember the, my first day on the floor, I went, went as a full time employee. I went to get lunch at the canteen. And I came back and the guy next to me was just staring at me. And he was like, where have you been? And I was like, I've been to get lunch. He was like, where did you go? I was like, uh, canteen. What did you eat? Uh, like sausage and beans. And then he goes to me, I've worked here for 10 years and I have never eaten in the canteen. We eat on the desk. Like this kind of like mm. hazing mentality. People would grab you and be like, what, what? It was the UK services PMI that came out just now. And you had to know the number. So I think there's a kind of, <laughs> it trains you into this kind of hypervigilant state. And it's, it is unhealthy, I think. And I think it's not just traders who experience this. I think often, you know, living in increasingly financial insecure world, you know, an increasingly online world, mm. a lot of people get trained into this sort of hypervigilant state where they feel like I can't make any mistakes. I have to be always on the ball. And I think that, it definitely affected my mental health. And I think it does affect the mental health of the people on the trading floor. Of course, a lot of these guys have been to public school. And mm. and if you read about the experiences of public school, you know, that kind of level of competitiveness and a sort of certain coldness and brutality is sort of every day. Um, did you, yeah. or did you feel when you were first there, Was did you start to feel scared at any point or did you get angry or? You know, when I was a kid, I was just so motivated to be. So we haven't mentioned that I, I got expelled from school when I was 16 for selling mm. like a very small amount of drugs. And um, that was a very traumatic experience. And I think I responded to that by just saying like, no more mistakes. We go, mm. we reach the top. Nothing's going to stop you. Like you're the best, you're going to do it. And I think a lot of young people will, will sort of, relate to that they've sort of felt similar things like I'm not going to let it stop me so I, I was never scared um I was that kind of guy that I was just like whatever you throw at me I'm going to deal with it I'm going to go over it I'm going to like push through it and you know I, I was successful I was a very successful trader it wasn't really until sort of a few years down the line that I started to sort of realize the toll it was taking on me mm. so I, I wasn't really scared I was a, very confident I was a coper I was a kind of like a, an overperformer, like a hyper worker. And I was really, I, I was pushing myself too hard. And over the years, that, that led to a burnout. Were drugs and drink a coping mechanism? Not for me. I was not that kind of guy. You know, there's another guy in the book, a good friend of mine called Harry Sambi, that, that sort of came in through me. And he went down that path. And a lot of people did go down that path. But 
after I got expelled, I got expelled for weed at 16. I was like, this is it. We don't do this anymore. No more drugs. Um, I mean, I was drinking, but only just when people bought me drinks. So, you know, I would very mm. rarely have more than sort of one or two drinks a night, really. And that was by the by sort of t- later in my career, I basically stopped going out entirely. Right. So I was sort of not your typical path. You know, I think we have people that cope by sort of going into these, you know, drunk, uh, drink, drugs, gambling, these kinds of things. But there's also people that just double down on work or like, you know, you even get people that I think really go aggressively into things that, that might be healthy behaviors in moderation, like things like gym, people are like, yeah. really, really hit the gym. I'm going to really exercise. And I wasn't really going mad at the gym, but you, I was the other type, which is classic workaholics, people that right. just go right in for the work, work really hard. So I was that type. I wasn't really partying much. I was just, I wasn't really living much at all. Really. I was just, I was just trading and trading and trading. Well, so what were you doing with all the money you started to make? Nothing really. No, it's always, it's crazy. You know, I made so much money and it, I was that kind of guy, you know, we talk about this in the book. Here's my target. I want to make hundred grand, hundred grand done. Next target, half a million, next target, million. Like, and it's mm. just like, it's like playing fucking Sonic the Hedgehog. Sorry, I'm going to have to swear. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm like playing Sonic the Hedgehog. It's just like yeah. top score, top <laughs> score, top score. Like, and it's, in hindsight, it's stupid, but that's just the kind of person that I was, like, you know, and there'll be a lot of young men out there that, you know, we want to be the best, but we never really stop and ask ourselves why, you know? It's, I think it's a result of coming coming from poverty, living in this very competitive society, you know, just wanting to show what we've got, you know? Mm. And it was, you know, I was in a weird situation where at a very young age, like 24, 25, I became the top trader in the world. And then it, it was only really that that forced me to sit back and ask myself, all right, what was this all for again? What was the point, you know? Yeah, I mean, being a workaholic, like any addiction, is usually like sign of like a distraction technique to, to stop yourself from ever reflecting on the way you feel. So did a moment arrive where where you started to sort of get in touch a bit more with, with your feelings? Yeah, so when I was, how old was I? 2011. So when I was 24, I started... I started dating a girl. It was like maybe my third, my first like really, really serious long-term relationship. And uh, she was a really nice girl. She's from Norwich, just like very sensible, normal girl. Not, not like me. Was insane mm. trader at the time. And um, we started dating in 2011, which was the year that I became Citibank's most profitable trader in the world. And, um, you know, that was a massive deal for me. I made a huge amount of money and I, I got my bonus. I cycled home. I sat down in the corner of my front room i got all my paperwork out. This is how much I'm getting. This is what I'm doing. What am I going to invest in? What's, this is going to go here. That's going to go there. And my girlfriend at the time came around. Her name in the book is Wizard, which is what I used to call her. She came around and um, she looked at me. And I could see when she looked at me that she was thinking, fucking hell, he doesn't look good. And mm. I was thinking, oh, why are you looking? And then she came over and she was like, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm, I'm doing my investments. And she's like, well, you seem like, you seem pretty stressed out. And I was like, well, it's a lot of fucking money. Of course, I'm stressed out. And she just said to me, you know, if I'd just made as much money as you just made, the last thing I'd be doing is sitting in the corner of my living room stressing the fuck out. Mm. And this little part of me straight away realised, fuck me, she's fucking right, isn't she? What the fuck am I doing? But Mm. this other part of me was like, fuck you. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Like, I've fucking worked hard for this, you know? And Mm. it was sort of, I think this dating her she was probably the first person like when I was a kid growing up it, people knew who I was he's that guy that got expelled from grammar school he's that really smart kid he's gonna go be big shot one day so I was kind of being judged for these kind of external things intelligence mm. success money mm. and then I dated someone who it really felt like they just like me as a person she was like you fucking hate that job you know you should quit and it kind of made me it sort of just really receiving that kind of non-materialistic kindness and being viewed as just as a person rather than a success mm. for the first time kind of made me realize that's what sort of made me start to question i think why why am i doing this like it maybe there's something more important than just being fucking rich you know what i mean mm. i mean a lot of what you've talked about in terms of your decision to leave and and your perception of the way the economy works is you know about inequality and and you you know, you grew to understand that you were, or you felt as if you were contributing 
to an unjust system that was worsening inequality. Um, that you know, which obviously that's that's a, a view that you know that that's there's some I don't know how political you are, but there's there's something political about that. But did that all start from more of like a human perspective, like her intervention for you to start seeing yourself? from a more human perspective? Is that how this sort of... Because it was almost like a road to Damascus moment you had. Yeah. Well, in a weird way, like, this... This came out of the trading, in a way. But it, it, it does have a human angle. So, in 2010, I had my first, like, big loss as a trader, which is when I was 20... 23. And um, my reaction was to go back to the books, you know, I went to LSE, I'm an economic student, and I started to bring my books into the office, and I was, like, reading these textbooks in the office, and I was very lucky when I was a trader. I worked with one guy who was from, also from a working-class background. He was in his, sort of, mid to late 40s when I worked with him. His name in the book is Bill. Um, he never went to university. He wasn't that kind of guy. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. And he saw me like in these textbooks, come up to me, just slap these textbooks out of my hand and threw them into the bin. And I was like, what the fuck are you doing? And he was like, listen, you're not a fucking kid anymore, right? If you want to understand the economy, it's not in those fucking books. Go home and ask your mum what she thinks about the economy. What's her financial situation like? Look at what's being advertised on a tube. Walk down the high street. Look at what shops are closing down. Ask your friends, ask your friends' families about their financial situation. And he kind of told me, like, the economy is not just fucking numbers. It's, it's people and people's lives. And, mm. and if you look at it like that, you can actually have a better understanding. So it's a very human angle. But I use that to do a very kind of cold analysis of what's happening. And when I went and asked people what's happening, you know, the question I was asking people is, why don't you spend more money? Because that's why the economy is weak. Mm. Obviously, everybody says, I don't fucking have any more money, you know. Mm. Then you start digging in and you realise, like, damn, you start looking at your friends and their families and their financial situation and you realise, like, you know, this is messed up. Like, if people are losing their homes, people are really struggling, then you turn around and you, you see the guys you work with in the city, you know, making a million pounds a year, buying, like, five houses on the river mm. and you start realizing like this is a problem this is a cause but i didn't view it even though i was doing this human analysis i was using that to do a very sort of cold conclusion of okay the economy is going to be bad what do we do we put this bet on and it was only after really i think one big thing that happened that sort of hit me and i think i kind of repressed it at the time was i put this big bet on that the economy is going to be terrible forever that was, this, that was my big bet. And then just like a week or two later, the 2011 Japan Fukushima earthquake happened. Mm. And I made a ton of money on that because it's bad for the economy. And, you know, 20,000 people died in that earthquake. And you're kind of just sitting there just like, what does this mean? What does this mean to make money on disaster? You know, And then mm. you, you just kind of ignore it. And then, you, you know, you say, okay, we're going to keep having more disaster. Then it happens. And then I was Citibank's best trader in the world based on betting on disaster, you know, and it's kind of, it's, it's such a crazy experience to have as a person. Um, but yeah, I was not a political kid. I wasn't really raised to ask these questions about what does it mean? What should we do? Mm. And I think I suppressed it. And I think I suppressed it for years. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why I entered, you know, towards the latter part of the book, I entered really a kind of a mental health crisis, really. And I think it came from, 
you know, suppressing these ideas of, you know, do I, do we as individuals have a responsibility to try and help others and try to, and try to, try to fix broken, a broken economy? And, and how did that manifest itself? Was that like these realisations plus presumably just complete exhaustion? I mean, you've got to just be emotionally, mentally and physically exhausted after years of, of working the way you did. Yeah, I mean, now looking back, I can sort of be sort of clinical and say recognise it as a burnout. But at the time, I didn't really know what burnout was. I, I started to get these really bad pains in my stomach, which were, I, I guess... I get, you could call them an acid reflux. Like it just felt like a pain in my heart and I had to go on pills for that. It's really like strong burning pain in my heart. But then I, I started to become like really disinterested. I did it. I, I, I never stopped loving trading, just the trading. I, I hated the floor. I, started, I stopped talking to everyone. I cut off some of my closest friends, barely spoke to my family. Um, I bought a new apartment, which is actually the apartment I'm talking to you from. It's quite a nice apartment, like down near, the, near Canary Wharf, near the river. I ripped everything out. I didn't buy any furniture. Just put a fucking bed, a mattress down and a TV down. And um, I just, you know, you know, you know about these things. Like, I, I lost interest in anything. The only thing I was doing was trading. That was it. I didn't care about anything else. You know, I'd, even things like just tidying up, you, you lose interest in it. Um, yeah, and looking back, I can see now it was a burnout. But at the time... I didn't see anything wrong with it. And it, what was weird about it was at the time, I was also like the best trader in the world and I was making tons of money. So everyone around me is like, you're the man, <laughs> you, go, you go home, you don't even have any fucking floors in your house. Yeah. And you just sort of thinking like, I mean, I was very young. I was 20, 23, 24, 25. I didn't know anything about mental health. I didn't have many support structures around me. When I tried to talk to the management, like, you know, I, I think I'm unwell. They thought I was trying to sort of haggle for more money. And they would just like throw more money at me. And it was like, okay, well, that's nice, but I'm not sure that's going to fix the problem. And uh, just, just a, it's a little bit of a side note. It was fascinating to me that, you, you know, you, you're the most successful trader in the world and you're living just like in this really kind of simplistic, non-materialistic way. I mean, when it came to you, you know, which I'm going to ask you about now, it's like the point at which you're actually quitting. You're walking yeah. away from this, you know, this this lucrative life. One thing you didn't have was you, you I, I suppose a lot of your peers would have been totally locked into a lifestyle, which meant it would be absolutely impossible for them to ever walk away from that career. Whereas you didn't have to by sounds things, you didn't have the, the, the big sort of indulgent or extravagant lifestyle that you didn't really need money based on the way you lived. Is that right? But I mean, I needed some. I mean, everyone, I mean, everyone needs need money, yeah. but I mean, you weren't yeah. locked into like some extraordinary Elton John style lifestyle, right? Yeah, I, I never. It's it's so crazy looking back because when I was a kid, I was kind of obsessed with making money, and then as soon as I made money, I completely stopped spending money. Like right. when I was a kid, I would I did a paper round for thirteen pounds a week. It got cut to twelve pounds a week, and I would save up for ten weeks and buy a pair of like TN Nike TN trainers for one hundred thirty pounds. And, you know, I really cared about what I had. And what, but then as soon as I started making tons of money, I just totally stopped spending money. I stopped going out. I stopped spending. It was weird. And I think, I think looking back in hindsight, I thought I was motivated by being rich. But actually, I probably just didn't want to be fucking poor anymore. Mm. You know, it's, it's tough. Be, and I think, you know, there's a lot of material difficulties involved with being, being poor. And, you know, a lot of people will be well aware of that. You know, there's men, mm. many people struggling to put the heating on and, and to get, put food on the table. But one other big factor about being poor, especially as a kid, is the fucking judgment that comes with it. Mm. You get so, you feel so judged and you feel so looked down on. And um, especially as a kid, it's, you know, it's obviously horrific. You know, it's not, I mean, I, I don't think it's anybody's fault that they're poor, but it's so painfully obvious when you're a kid, you know, you're like, I'm, I'm fucking 15, what do you want me to do, you know? I'm running, yeah. I'm working a paper and I'm working at DFS, you know. Um, so I think that probably that was what I was motivated by. Um, but it definitely, it, it made it easy to walk away. And it meant, you know, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, I, I you buy the absolute cheapest of everything. You know what I mean? Mm. And then that feels terrible. But in a weird way, it gave me this freedom because I knew I could, I knew I could live that kind of life and I knew I could walk away from that money. And, there was one sort of meeting I remember having with one of senior management when I tried to leave. And the manager was like, how much money have you made? 
two million pounds, that's nothing. You'll be back. You'll be back on your knees, and you that won't even last you five years. Mm. And I remember thinking, fucking two million pounds. That's probably more than my family's made in fucking twenty five generations. I'm not going to be back mm. on my fucking knees. Yeah. You know what I mean? But that's that is you know. People from wealthier backgrounds, they live these kind of lifestyles where they'll spend half a million quid a year. That's mm. what they need just to cover their basic essentials. You know, for me, you know, I definitely don't need that much, you know, and, and that that gives me freedom. And, and you know, I think it, it is it's easy to fall into that trap of consumerism and commercialism. But if you can stay away from it, then, you know, it can make your life a lot easier and it can, it can make you, you know, I've seen very wealthy men who are tied to their screens, you know, so money doesn't solve all your problems if you, if it becomes an addiction. What what was the point where you realised you were going to get out? Was there one? So there's sort of one scene in the book. I don't want to sort of spoiler it, but I, I started to sort of act out. I started to piss people off on purpose. Right. And I didn't really sort of know what I was doing. I think I was kind of angry in some way at these people around me for not realising I was sick or maybe because of the inequality, which was so sort of manifest around me. Um, and there was one sort of meeting where I got hauled off the desk and got put into this office and I was just getting shouted at. And um, by then, I'd, I wasn't wearing, like, work clothes. I'd cycle into the office and I'd just base, dress very similarly to how you see me now. I'd be trading. Yeah. And um, I was still wearing the shoes that I used to wear to go to uni, which is a pair of Onitsuka Tigers. And I was just sitting down getting shouted at looking at my shoes. And I suddenly realised that I had massive holes in both of my shoes. And I could see my socks sticking out of the shoes. And I was thinking, like, that's kind of this moment. This is little moment where you realise, like, why the fuck am I doing this? You know, I'm I'm a, doing a, just, just out of interest, and this, this is very vulgar, but what sort of money did you have in the bank, in your personal bank account, when you were looking at your shoes and you had and your, stu- and your toes were sticking out? Well, I mean, I, I was very active in investing, so I wasn't keeping it in the bank, but I'd yeah. been paid a million pounds in the previous year. Right, right. Yeah. Um, but I'd become, I had become like like a money making like machine in a way. Mm-hmm. So I, it's and for me, a big part of the book is about kind of the dehumanization that comes with the obsession with money in our society. Yeah. When, when you turn people into numbers and you make people obsess about money, I've got, you know, I've got so many people that I know they and, and I was the same when I was younger they just think if I just had more money everything would be fine if I just had yeah. more money everything would, and, and you know I don't all want to disrespect the many people who are living in serious poverty that do need more money mm. but the truth is there are a lot of things in life that are very important that are not just about money and you know you will know that you know mm. but mm. We, we we create this society which forces so many people into poverty forces so many people to obsess about money now, what are the things that we're forgetting about while we're obsessed with making more money? You know, I was definitely forgetting about a lot of things myself. Um, so, sorry, you're you're acting out at work, and is is that what brought it all to a head? Well, I sort of kicked off, and then I just said, I saw, I just said, I want to quit. I hadn't planned it at all. Just came out, I want to quit, and my boss was like, sort of shocked, and. Um, they sort of managed it. They were like, look, you can't... You, what I asked was a sabbatical. I was like, well, I, don't, I don't need to quit. I want a sabbatical. And they were like, the big boss was like, don't give me a sabbatical because you'll never come back. And, you know, I was like the big... You were, too, you were too valuable to them, presumably. Yeah, basically. Yeah. So they were like, don't give him a sabbatical. What we'll do is we'll offer to move him to Japan. We'll give him like a nice big corporate apartment, a nice big salary in Japan. He's young. It'll be exciting. We'll send him to Japan. And I was kind of like... I don't think that's a good idea. And then they were like, no, you have to go. It's kind of weird, sort of sinister way. And then they sent me to Japan. And of course, like, you know, if I was, if I was struggling for support structures in London, you can imagine in Japan, you know, I didn't speak the language. I didn't fucking understand anything about the food. I had no friends there. It was super alien culture. And I, I sank really deeply into a depression basically when I was there. I was still making money as a trader, but that's when I kind of decided like, you know, my, Stomach problems were terrible. I lost a ton of weight. I got down to, I think I was less than nine stone. And, you know, yeah. I'm quite a small guy, but nine yeah. stone is, is not yeah. a lot. I mean, and I think it was, I think I was pushing it away. I was kind of in denial. 
that I was having mental health problems. But it just it reached a point where it was so obvious. And my girlfriend was you know, really worrying about me. She was just like, what are you doing? You know, you need to. And then you, that's when I sort of realised, you know, this has gone too far. Like, we have to walk away from this. Whatever happens, like, we have to walk away. Mm. And they, they tried to stop you again, didn't they? I mean, there was sort of like the book opens with some, you know, thinly veiled threats from from uh, one of your bosses. Yeah, we've got the opening scene of the book, which um, is my my boss in Japan. He was an American, making it pretty clear, let's say, that it's it's not going to be easy if I want to leave. Mm. Um, it's quite a dramatic scene. Um, but obviously it was, you know, it was very traumatic, you know. It, it was basically saying, you know, if you leave, you know, we're going to see you and you're going to lose everything. And, you know, I didn't have a, a lot of support out there and I'd worked fucking hard for this amount of money. Also, at the time, my mental health was so bad, I basically thought I'm never going to be able to work again. That's mm. what I thought, I'll never be able to work again. So I need this money because I can't work anymore. Like I'm fu- and this, I need this money to pay the bills and to buy food because mm. I can't work anymore. Um, but yeah, it was a. They made it very difficult. Um, they set a challenge for me, but um, I'm here now, so you can see, you can see, uh, you can you can read that full conflict in the book. Yeah, it was a, a difficult time. What, what, what was your recovery like? You know, when when you sort of left, that's you know, you start to get you. You know, the the work is no longer providing the distraction and or the the numbing sort of effects that it had done for years. So. When it when you just had to sit and get in touch with all of these feelings and, and issues, how, how what how did you go about that? Did you was it did you see therapist? Did, what was it? You know, it was a weird thing, right? Because I wanted to quit, leave Japan, and come back to London, but because the bank kind of basically refused to allow me to quit, I was forced to stay in Japan um, and not work. Basically, and I ended up taking a bit of sick leave, and it was a weird one because you know I was kind of being threatened with being sued by like the biggest corporation in the world. And I wasn't able to work, but I was kind of like stuck in, in Tokyo. Mm. And um, the, the fifth part of the book is set in Tokyo. And the opening line of that part is, Tokyo is a wonderful place to be depressed, especially in the autumn. <laughs> and um, Tokyo is a funny place because I think Japan is a culture that is obsessed with the, the obligation of the individual to society and to the people around them and to others. Mm. Whereas I grew up in London, which you know, has a culture I think of, you know, get the money, sort yourself out, you know. Mm. And there was, there's one scene in the book, it's towards the end of the book. It's not a spoiler because it's a very short scene. I went to karaoke with, I started to make friends in Japan and I hated karaoke, I hated it. I'm actually quite a good singer, but I hated karaoke. I used to get very self-conscious. I wasn't used to it. And I sang my little song and I sat down and this old Japanese man, he said to me, listen, you're doing karaoke wrong. He said, you don't need to worry about whether you sing well or you sing badly. The only thing that matters is that your guests have a good time. Mm. And there's this idea in Japan that you, you, should, you should care about others and make sure people around you are, are doing okay. And obviously, I received a lot of this attention in Japan. And when I first went to Japan, I wasn't used to it. And it just kind of stressed me out. And I got very, like, I felt claustrophobic. But then being forced to sort of wander around Tokyo for like a year without any work, learning Japanese, getting used to the people and, and receiving this kind of care. It's, it kind of started to like slowly heal me in a way. Mm. And I started to make friends that didn't know I was a banker, didn't know I was a millionaire. They just thought I was some, you know, if you're an English guy in Japan, people think you're like an impoverished English teacher because that's what right. most English people in Japan are. And I just started to get treated as just a, a human again you know, rather than a millionaire banker. And, it, it you know, it, it, you know, it was a long process and a couple of years in Japan didn't fix everything. And, you know, I've, I've done therapy since I've come back and it's been, yeah, I think the, the work that I do now, which is, which is not for me, which is for others, I think does a massive amount to help me. And, but I think it's, I've heard, so, I, who was it? I heard somebody talk about it. It's like, first you find yourself and then you find others, you know what I mean? Mm. And I think mm. for me, being cared about and being in a space where people cared about me freed me to care about others. And now when I go to karaoke, all I want to do is make sure other people have a good time. And like paradoxically, I enjoy it much more. Right. Now that I'm caring about others and thinking about others makes me enjoy my life much more. And I, sometimes I think that in this country, especially in London, 
we have too much of a self-focused culture that obsesses with ourselves. And I don't think, I honestly don't think humans can be happy if they're, if they're obsessed with themselves. I think mm. you, you need to be connected with others. You need to care about others. You need to, to give others. And you know, I, I'm not a professional psych- psychologist, so you can take that what you will. But, but, but for me, you know, and I wouldn't say I'm, you know, a paragon of perfect mental health now, but I've, I've come a long way from where I was. And for me, a, a big part of that is, is, you know, learning to take care of, of other people. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I'm not a professional either, but it's something that certainly when you hear people who've made a recovery and, and people who, who are close as, as, you know, I sit in like um in meetings with other people in recovery from all sorts of things. And it's one of the most common things that comes up is aligned with what you said is that, you know, the more you devote time and energy to, to helping others, the better you feel. Um, I guess my biggest question before we wrap up is like, you seem to have been, from what I can establish, you were born with a certain innate drive and competitiveness. And, you know, right from a young age, that seems evident. That's just part of you. And and in, and it helped you get to where you got to. But also it sounds to me as if it was, you know, it, it was also a burden in many ways. Have you managed to, to sort of push that down? Or, or even get rid of it? Or is it still there burning, yeah. even though you've devoted your life to something else? Is it still there haunting you? Do you still want to win? Do you still want to kind of prove yourself? It's funny. I, th- it, I mean, it's there to a degree. So I recently went back to, I did a master's at Oxford, 17 to 19. And I was already th- about to turn 31 when I started. And I didn't really go there to get top grades. I went there to learn about economics and to help build the work that I'm doing now. And there, there were kids there, you know, 22, 23, that beat me in the first year exams. I wasn't even really studying, to be honest. But there was this little part of me, this little voice in the back of my head that was like, fuck those guys, you're better than them. (laughs) And, you know, I'm older now, so, you know, I know that voice. And I sat down and said, listen, it's all right. They're kids. They need those grades. You don't need the grades. Just let them get the grades. You do you. Um, But, you know, I still still struggle to find, like, life-work balance, you know. I run my YouTube. I run all the social media, Instagram, TikTok. I wrote this book. I put a lot of my life into that book. We're doing a ton of interviews. We're doing a ton of like a ton of media publicity. I want the book to do really well. Um, You know, even now I find myself falling into them habits of like, I work too hard and I don't give myself enough time for me. Um, But now I'm aware that I'm doing it. And, you know, the book's coming out very, very soon. So I want to give it a big push now. and, And I really care about the YouTube, but I know now to take time off and take time for me as well. But, you know, Somebody said to me once, like, you change in life, but all of those younger versions of you, they still exist inside you. You know, they're still yeah. there and you need to take care of them. So I think, like, those weaknesses and those sort of mental problems I've had when I was younger, they're still there, but I'm older now. I like to think I'm wiser and, and I know how to take care of them. And, you know, I think my, my mental health is getting better. I feel like I'm, I'm in a much better place than I was when I was younger. But, you know, the problems don't just go away, but, you know, we learn ways to deal with them. And I know... I know the signs and I know the things to do. I know to reach out to people. I know to sort of let people in. I know to like step back from work and do you rest? You know, do you, yeah, do, you exactly. make, do you make yourself rest sometimes now? A lot more than I did. Yeah. I haven't had as much rest recently as maybe I should have done, but you know, when the book's out and there's, I'll take a bit of time to calm and I I travel a bit. I go and step away and yeah. I rest more. Well, I'm getting older, so I have to rest a bit more than I used to. Let me ask you, despite everything that you've come to uh, feel about the work you used to do and the way the economy works, is there ever a point at which you see something in the news, right, or an event going on in the economy and a part of your brain just tells you how you could make a million quid out of that that day if you wanted to? It never stops. Never stops. I but still trade. I've been for a long time, but now right. I trade now. But I'll, when I say this, I would like to be clear: trading is very dangerous. I know a lot of young men have had a lot of problems with dangerous with, with trading. So if anyone's going to do it, be very careful. But you know, I was the best trader in the world for one of the world's biggest banks. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, and I see the world in that way. You know, I yeah. that's how I see the world. Um, yeah. I can't change it. That's that's what I am. But but what I do now is, I don't just bet on it. I go out on my YouTube and I tell people what's going to happen. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. So, you know, you know, why, why is that? Why is Messi still playing football? Because mm. he fucking loves it and he's good at it. You know, and yeah. I was as good as Messi at football, but I'm not. But what I am good at is trading and economics. But I don't do it just for me now. You know, the YouTube is there. It's free. Anyone who wants to understand what's happening, 
it's there and I'm, I'm doing my bit. And, you know, I think, I think as humans, you know, we have the capacity to, to be selfish and take care of ourselves whilst also caring about others and helping others. You know, I don't think we need to choose. Mm. You know, I still trade, I still make money. I don't think those are bad things to do. But at the same time, I work hard and I do my bit to try and fix the problems we have in society. And I think, you know, I, I like to think I have enough space in my heart, both for myself and for the people around me and for the people of this country and for the people of the world. And, you know, I think we all do, you know, you don't have to choose between being selfish and caring for others. You know, we're big enough to do both. And I think that's what you need to do to be to be a complete person, I think. Gary, it's fascinating listening about your life and you're an inspirational guy um, and, you know, just incredible things that you've done and incredible stuff that you've written in this book. So my advice is to everyone to go out and buy it. It's an incredible read. And I'm very grateful for your time today, Gary. Cheers. That's right. Thanks so much, Sam. Nice to meet you. That was Gary Stevenson. His new book is called The Trading Game, A Confession, and it's published on March 5th. You can check out his incredibly informative videos on the economy and how it works over on his YouTube channel, which is called Gary's Economics. I can highly recommend that. Thanks for listening to the pod as always. If you don't already do so, please subscribe to The Reset at samdelaney.substack.com. You'll get this podcast sent to your inbox direct every week, ad-free, and also regular newsletters and bonus pods too. Thanks for listening as always, gang. And until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.